Good morning. It's good to see everybody this morning. Well, as you know, we are in John chapter 6. The chapter began with Jesus feeding the 5,000, which, as you know, is, is a count of the men. It doesn't include the, the women and children, so it's more like 10 to 20,000 that he supernaturally fed. A, a little boy gave him five barley loaves and two pieces of fish, and he just supernaturally manufactured it into enough food to feed thousands of people. That's how the chapter began, because Jesus was setting the stage for his sermon, for his sermon on the bread of life. He makes the first of his seven I am claims in John chapter 6, where he says, I am the bread of life. What he's taught so far in this sermon is that he is the true manna that came down from heaven. Different than the manna that, that the wilderness generation, that the Exodus generation ate. They ate it, they were nourished by it, they had life by it, but then they died like every other generation of humanity. Jesus says, I'm very different than that manna. I'm the true manna. Eat my flesh and drink my blood, he says in John chapter 6, with this graphic metaphor, this graphic imagery of the bread of life because he provides forever life. He provides everlasting life. This is what he has taught in the bread of life sermon. Through that graphic metaphor, he's been teaching that they should trust him. Trust him for the reconciliation that he provides because we are at enmity with God. We need peace with God. That's what reconciliation does. It takes two parties who are at, at enmity, at war, in conflict, and it reconciles them. It brings them together. And so Jesus, through this Bread of Life sermon, has been saying that he will give his life, eat my flesh, drink my blood. His body will be broken. His blood will be shed. He's speaking figuratively, metaphorically for the crowd, pointing to the reality of what will come one year after he delivers the Bread of Life sermon, where he will literally have his body broken and his blood shed literally. And so he's telling them to trust the sacrifice that he will provide. Today, we will see the crowd's response. Look at John chapter 6, verse 59. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Capernaum was Jesus' home base. Here we learn that Jesus has been preaching this sermon in the synagogue there in Capernaum, meaning it's the place of the religious leaders. People were interested in the things of God in the synagogue. You didn't have to be a priest to stand up and, and speak of the things of God in a synagogue. A, a lay person could stand up and speak of the things of God in a synagogue. And so they don't know exactly who Jesus is, but they know that he speaks with authority. And so he stood up and he preached the Bread of Life sermon in the synagogue there in Capernaum. Here's a picture of the, of the remains of the doorway of, of, of the remains of that synagogue. Capernaum is, is on the northeast, in the northwest coast of the Sea of Galilee. Then in verse 60 of chapter 6, we read this. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? The this, when they heard this, 
It means everything he's already taught in John chapter 6. It means the Bread of Life sermon. It means that the message that he's been giving to this crowd. The word here for disciples in the Greek is mathetes. And mathetes means a learner, a pupil, a follower. And the scripture uses mathetes, disciples, in different ways. Sometimes the scripture will use mathetes to mean the twelve, the twelve disciples. Sometimes the scripture will use mathetes, disciples, to mean those who follow Christ and who have trusted in him, who have exercised faith in him. And so they follow him because they want to learn from the Lord. They want to follow his ways. They want to follow his word. And sometimes the scripture uses mathetes to mean those who follow the Lord but who are not saved. And so there are many in this crowd who are following the Lord because he fed the, the 5,000, 10,000, 20,000. And so they were part of the crowd who got free food, and so they're following the Lord because they want more free stuff. They want more free food. Actually, Jesus said, you follow me because you're hungry again. He said that earlier in John chapter 6. So, mathetes, disciples, can be used in different ways in the scripture. Many of Jesus' followers here fall in that third category. They're following him, but they haven't trusted in him for salvation. They perceive his statements as too difficult. That's what verse 60 says. They're too difficult. These things are difficult for us. It doesn't mean that it was difficult, the, the, the words of Jesus in the Bread of Life sermon, it doesn't mean that it was difficult for them to understand it. No, they understood it, they just didn't want it. It was difficult for them to accept it, not to understand it. They understood his words, but they refused the meaning. So when Jesus said in John chapter 6, verse 41, I came down from heaven, which is to say, I am God, standing before you in the synagogue. I'm God, standing in your presence in flesh and bones. They understood it, but it was too difficult for them to accept. They rejected it, and they say in verse 42, no, 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 no. You're the son of Joseph and Mary. You're the man that we know. Nazareth is just about 30 miles from Capernaum. It's down the road. We know your family. What are you talking about come down from heaven? Please. You're somebody that we know. We know your family. We know you. We knew you when you were a little boy because they are spiritually blind, and they think of the material world that they can see and touch and feel. And so they're blind, spiritually. They don't see the, the spiritual truths that are being taught to them by a man who is fully man and fully God. Or when Jesus says, you will live forever if you eat my flesh and drink my blood, in verses 56 through 58, they, because they think materialistically, they think, this is, this is, this is disgusting, Jesus. You're talking about cannibalism. That is gross. And of course, Jesus is not talking about cannibalism. Jesus is talking about his sacrifice. He's speaking of spiritual things, but they don't perceive it. They understand his words, but they think of them in terms of material that they can see and touch and feel. The physical realm, not the spiritual dimension. God is spirit, and so God who is incarnate, stands before them and speaks, of the, speaks to them of the spiritual realm. But this is foolishness to them. It's not believable, so they reject it. 
They live by sight and not by faith. To them, Jesus' words are absurd. They're foolishness. To the unbelieving mind, the gospel is ridiculous. It's stupid. To the unbelieving mind, the gospel of Jesus Christ is, is insanity. It's, it's foolishness. And the Apostle Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The word, therefore, foolishness in the Greek is moria. Does that sound familiar, like in an English word? Moron. Moron. Moronic. The gospel is moronic to the unbelieving mind. It's not that it can't be understood. It's just it's perceived as silliness, as idiocy, and not just foolishness, but it's perceived as downright offensive. Look at verse 61. But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, remember, disciples, we're just talking about followers of Jesus. They're not, and he uses the word disciples here, it's not talking about the 12, it's talking about followers of Jesus, whether they came for the right reason or the wrong reason. In this context, it's the wrong reason. But Jesus, in verse 61, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, does this cause you to stumble? The Greek word for stumble is skandalizo, where we get our English word scandalous. And in this context, it really means to offend or to anger someone. Now, the NASB, which I just read from, translates scandalizo as to stumble, but most other Bibles translate it as to offend. So if you're reading from a, from a New King James or from an NET, it would say something like, does this cause you to be offended? That's how it translates it. I think that's the better way to translate it, because scandalizo in this context, it can mean stumble, but I think here the context is really offense. Jesus is saying, do my words offend you? Does my bread of life sermon my statement that I came from heaven to offer my body, my flesh, my blood, metaphorical language again, for you, because you're subject to the wrath of God. You need a sacrifice. You need atonement. Does that offend you? Jesus says. He knows that it does. He's omniscient. He knows the answer. The unbelieving mind perceives the gospel not just as foolishness, but as an offense. So the unbelieving world attacks it, right? The unbelieving world says, I can be right with God. I can be good with God based on what I do because I'm pretty good. I don't know if you know that. I'm pretty good. The unbelieving world thinks, and God, let me show you how good I am so that you will view me as okay with you, so that you will actually praise me, God, because I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do that, and I'm going to make people think that I'm worthy, and you're going to think that I'm worthy. That's the way the unbelieving world approaches God, that we will show our value to God, our worthiness to God, through who we are. And this is why the unbelieving world is offended at the gospel of Jesus Christ, because the gospel of Jesus Christ says, no, your works are disgusting before God to use the language of, of, of Isaiah, there is a filthy rag before God, which is actually a tame translation. 
They're disgusting before God. Your works are disgusting before God. In fact, you are a rebel sentenced to eternal punishment because of who you are, a sinner. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the bad news and the good news. There's bad news and good news. You can't understand the good news if you don't understand the bad news. The bad news is that we're sinners subject to his wrath, and the good news is that he offers us a way out. But when you tell the world that their righteousness is repugnant before God, that takes a needle. It's like taking a needle and pricking the the, the balloon. It pricks their pride, and so the the normal knee-jerk to the gospel of Jesus Christ by the unbelieving world, which is prideful, prideful in their righteousness, the knee-jerk is offense. This is why Paul says in Galatians 5.11, And I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why do I suffer persecution? Then the offense of the cross has ceased. What he's saying there is, remember, Paul was a Pharisee, and Paul used to teach compliance with the law. He used to teach salvation by works as a Pharisee. That's what the Pharisees lived by. Salvation by compliance with the law. Salvation, compliance with the law would include circumcision. He used to teach that. But then he taught, then he was saved. Then he instead taught salvation by grace through faith, which is the cross. Or to use Jesus' metaphor, eating his flesh and drinking his blood. It's accepting fully the sacrificial sacrificial work of Christ. Paul taught the cross instead of, he taught salvation through the cross instead of salvation by works, and for that reason he was being persecuted apparently in Galatians. Some people were, were, were accusing him of still teaching what he used to teach as a Pharisee, salvation by works, and he says, no, the evidence that I'm not teaching salvation by works anymore is that I'm being persecuted because I'm teaching salvation through the cross which is Jesus' message. Paul describes it as offensive, and Jesus recognizes that his crowd views his message as offensive. The point of verse 61 of chapter 6 of the Gospel of John is that many of Jesus' followers were offended by his Bread of Life sermon. It was scandalous. Scandalous in their ears. So Jesus says... Sorry, I didn't mean to offend you. I'm I'm just going to leave now and and stop talking. Is that what he said? No. As he always does, he turns the volume up. He says, you ain't seen nothing yet. He says, you're offended by by the graphic imagery of my metaphor, eat my flesh and drink my blood. What's going to happen? when you actually see the metaphor literally happen? How are you going to respond when you see me crucified and my body broken and my blood spilled? Look at verse 62. What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? The first thing I want you to notice in verse 62 is that Jesus, as he has done many, many, many times so far in the Gospel of John, claims deity for himself. He claims to be God because he says, I came from heaven and I'm returning to my abode in heaven. When the nice people come to your door, which they're actually not that nice because they're trying to deceive you, but when the nice people come to your door and they say, Jesus was a good teacher, he was an interesting being, he wasn't God, but he was sure he was good, 
they're lying to you. I'm talking about the Jehovah's Witnesses. They're deceiving you. And they say that Jesus never claimed to be God. That is a lie. He claims to be God many, many times throughout the, throughout the Gospels. We've seen many of them already in John chapter 6. And here you see it just straight up. I came from heaven and I'm returning to heaven. That's a statement of his deity. Though many of his followers have come to be hostile towards him and towards his message, Jesus loves them. He loves them. He loves his enemies, so he's concerned about their salvation. That's why he stands there and turns the volume up. That's why he stands there and continues to preach the truth in the face of a crowd that is becoming more and more hostile to his words. Because for them, his words are an offense. They're scandalous. He says, what happens if you see me ascending to heaven? That's what he says in verse 62. Ascending to heaven. What does he mean by that? There are only 11 people who are going to see him ascending to heaven. As long as you don't include the angel. Right? In Acts chapter 1, there are 11 men who see him ascending into heaven. Up to heaven. Right? It's the 12 minus Judas. They watch him go up. And the angel says, what are you, what are you, what are you still looking at? I mean, the angel, it's almost as if the angel says, okay, he's gone, get to work. But it's 11 who see him. Why is Jesus saying in John chapter 6, you're, what's your, I'm paraphrasing, what's your response when you see me ascending? What's going to be your response when you see me ascending to heaven? Why is he saying ascending to heaven when this crowd will not see him ascend into heaven? And only 11 will in Acts chapter 1, the 11 of the disciples. He's saying that because I believe he's talking about ascension in a broader sense. I believe he's talking about the process of ascension, the process of being lifted up, which really involves four parts. His suffering, his crucifixion, his resurrection, and his ascension. The passion of Christ, the suffering, his crucifixion, his resurrection, and his ascension. Those are the four parts of him being lifted up, him being glorified. And what's happening here is he's speaking just in, 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 a, in a generality here. Four parts of him being lifted up, of him ascending. Without the first three of those, the fourth is impossible. Without his suffering, his crucifixion, and his resurrection, he could not ascend to heaven. The three, the first three are essential before the fourth can occur, before he can ascend as a man without a spacesuit, right? I mean, he travels through the heavens, no air pack, no helmet, no jet pack, he just goes. And he, in flesh and bones, the only human who has ever done it, walks through the gates of heaven and sits down at the right hand of the majesty on high. As a man, in flesh and bones, hips and a spine. He can't do that unless the first three happen. His suffering, his crucifixion, and his resurrection. Do you understand that the path to glory, 
was through shame and suffering. The cross had to precede the crown. Do you understand what was at risk? God the Son left heaven. He's co-equal with the Father to come as a man to be tempted. Matthew chapter 4, tempted many times by the devil. Of course, he rejected each, each of the temptations. But the real temptation was on the cross when he got to your sins and my sins. Right? I mean, he bore the sins of the world in obedience to the Father because the Father had sent him on a mission to reveal the love of God by being sacrificed to offer salvation to a lost and dying world. And so he had to accomplish the mission before he would be glorified by sitting at the right, by, being, by literally ascending and sitting at the right hand of God. This is all what's packed in here. It's an incredible reality when you, when you analyze these doctrines here. Remember the night before Jesus was to be crucified, he prayed this, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory with which I, with which I had with you before the world was. This is before he will be arrested that evening and crucified the next morning. Jesus could not return to heaven, could not ascend to his prior place of glory, which he had with the Father before the foundation of the world, without first fulfilling the scriptures. He had to pay for the sins of the world. He had to suffer unfairly. He had to be crucified. He had to go the way of all flesh, which is death. The mortality rate among human beings is 100%. No exceptions. Not even an exception for God in the flesh. He had to fulfill the scriptures before he returned to the place of glory. He had to pay for the sins of the world. He had to suffer. He had to be crucified. He had to die, and he had to be resurrected. You can read about those prophecies with respect to the Messiah in the Hebrew scriptures. Psalm 22, Isaiah 53. In Jesus' great love, he is concerned about the crowd's the crowd's salvation. And so in verse 62, he's saying, you're offended at my words. The gist of verse 62 is, you're offended at my words? Wait for my works. You're offended at my words, my metaphorical words about eat my flesh and drink my blood, my literal statement that I have come from heaven and I will literally return to heaven. Just wait for my works. If you're troubled by my words, you need to get over that because my works are going to be the literal fulfillment of that metaphor. You think that my words are scandalous. Wait for the crucifixion. See, you didn't talk about crucifixion in mixed company in ancient times. It was such a horror. All right, we, we have necklaces that have a, a cross on it or a bracelet that has a cross on it. The ancient world would have cringed at that. Because the method of execution of crucifixion was something horrible, grotesque. And so the Father selects the most shameful, the most shameful of all methods of execution for his son to show to you the significance of sin. 
We take sin so casually, so flippantly. Yeah, whatever. Whatever. It's not what the Romans and the Jews did to Jesus on the cross that gives us salvation. It's what the Father did to Jesus on the cross. Where the Father poured out our sins when the earth was dark for three hours because it was a private matter between the Son and the Father. Jesus is saying, he's he's speaking these words to prepare this audience for something that is going to be much more scandalous than his words. It's going to be the cross itself. It would be through through the shame of the cross that the Son of Man would be glorified when his body would be literally broken and his blood would be literally shed as an atonement for the sins of the hostile hearers. As an atonement for the sins of a hostile world, thereby, thereby satisfying the wrath of God and offering salvation and reconciliation to sinners. Many in this crowd would witness Jesus' crucifixion a year later in Jerusalem because you would go to Jerusalem for the Passover and it would be a year from now that the Passover would be held in Jerusalem and Jesus would be crucified on that Friday. And so Jesus is preparing this audience to get over his met- the, 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 the metaphorical language, believe my metaphorical language, get over this scandalous idea that you have, this offense that you have, because it's going to get more intense In their spiritual blindness, this crowd perceives Jesus' words as offensive and scandalous instead of as life-giving. So in verse 63, Jesus points them to the spiritual realm, to the Spirit of God. Look at verse 63. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. Jesus teaches them what he taught Nicodemus in chapter 3, that they need access to God's life. And it is God, the Holy Spirit, who gives life. Remember what Jesus said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. The Spirit gives life through the Word of God. Moses said we are to live not by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Right? Deuteronomy 8.3. He, the Lord, this is Moses speaking to the Israelites. He, the Lord, humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of Yahweh the covenant name of God. We worship Yahweh in the flesh. We have trusted in Yahweh in the flesh, who is Jesus Christ. Jeremiah said that he consumed God's word. Jeremiah 15, 16, your words were found and I did eat them. And your words became for me a joy and a delight of my heart. For I have been called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. A very significant title for God, that language is, it's not the usual Yahweh Sabaoth, which we sang about in A Mighty Fortress is Our God, right? It's not Lord Sabbath is his name, it's Lord Sabaoth is his name, that hymn from Martin Luther, 
translated in, into the English. Right? Yahweh Sabaoth is the Lord of the armies. Yahweh is his name. That's the name that he told the, the Israelites to use in Exodus 3. So I speak the name, as opposed to, to as often is done, it's, it's, you know, some pronounce it as Adonai. But the name itself is Yahweh, those four Hebrew letters, yod He vav He. But this name that Jeremiah uses is Yahweh Elohim Sabaoth. Not the usual Yahweh Sabaoth, Lord of the armies, Lord of hosts. Hosts is an old English word for armies. This is Yahweh Elohim Sabaoth. Yahweh is his name. He's God. Elohim is God of the armies. It's this title of massive authority. As if Lord of the armies wasn't enough, Jeremiah says, Lord God of the armies, saying that you're the boss. If I could use just street lingo. You're the boss. And I recognize that. Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah says, Ezekiel prophesied in vivid imagery about how the Spirit gives life through the Word of God. That's what Moses said. That's, what, that's the gist of what Moses was saying in Deuteronomy 8. That's the gist of what Jeremiah was saying in Jeremiah 15, that God gives life through the Word of God. Please turn in your Bibles to Ezekiel 37. Ezekiel 37, we've seen this passage before, but it is so powerful in its description, in its picture and imagery of how it is that the Spirit gives life through the Word of God. How the Spirit makes the dead live through the Word of God. Ezekiel chapter 37, verse 1. It reads like this. The hand of Yahweh was upon me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of Yahweh and set me down in the middle of the valley, and it was full of bones. The Hebrew word here for spirit is ruach. Ruach can be translated spirit or wind or breath. We're going to see it many times in this passage. Verse 2. He caused me to pass among them round about, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and lo, they were very dry. He said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, Oh, Lord God, you know. Again he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O oh, dry bones, hear the word of Yahweh. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause ruach, breath, to enter you, spirit to enter you that you may come to life. I will put sinews on you, sinews or, or tendons and ligaments. To, I will put sinews <clears throat> excuse me, on you, make your flesh grow back on you, cover you with skin and put breath. Did y'all hear that audio? In you, it, it, let, let me keep reading. In verse 6, I will put sinews on you, make flesh grow back on you, cover you with skin, and put breath in you, that you may come alive, and you will know that I am Yahweh. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied there was a noise, and behold, a, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone, and I looked, and behold, sinews were on them, and flesh grew, and skin covered them, but there was no breath, no ruach in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the ruach, Prophesy, son of man, and say to the Ruach, Thus says the Lord God, Come 
from the four winds, O Ruach, and breathe on these slain that they come to life. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and Ruach came into them. And they came to life and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Verse 13. Then you will know that I am Yahweh when I have opened your graves and caused you to come up out of your graves, my people. I will put my spirit, my Ruach, within you, and you will come to life, and I will place you on your own land. Then you will know that I, Yahweh, have spoken and done it, declares Yahweh. The point of Ezekiel 37, this prophecy, this prophecy about the dry bones coming to life, the point of the prophecy is that God creates life, and he does it through his spirit, his spirit who speaks. He creates life through his spirit who uses the word of God as the method of creation. The Old Testament scriptures are clear that the spirit gives life through the word, but Jesus does something very different, very unique here. So please turn back to John chapter 6 in verse in, in, in John chapter 6, in verse 63, Jesus changes it. He says, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits, no, profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Do you, do you see what happened? Do you see it? Jesus doesn't say that the Spirit gives life through God's word. Jesus says the Spirit gives life through my word. Again, he is equating himself with the Father, equating himself with God, as he has done a myriad of times already. We saw many of them in John chapter 5, and we've seen many of them in John chapter 6. He's presenting himself as the word of God, that the Spirit gives life through me, which is perfectly consistent with the Old Testament, perfectly consistent with Deuteronomy 8, perfectly consistent with Jeremiah, perfectly consistent with Ezekiel 37. The only difference is the Word of God is now a person as opposed to an utterance from God as it was in the Old Testament. The Word of God is a person. This fits like a hand in a glove in, in, in the Gospel of John, right? I mean, how does the Gospel begin? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Lagos stands before a crowd that hates him, that has become hostile to him. At first they came because they wanted bread for their bellies. But when he said, you must believe in me, God in the flesh, you must accept the sacrifice that I offer because you are not worthy before God that became scandalous to this crowd. And so the Lagos stands before them and says that the Spirit gives life through the Word of God, which is to say through me, Jesus says. If the crowd would accept him for who he says he is, then the Spirit will give them spiritual life. Look at verse 64. But there are some of you who do not believe See, this is the sad reality. The sad reality of many who follow Jesus. Many follow Jesus, and they are still unsaved. Many follow Jesus, and they are unredeemed. Maybe there's someone here today who has gone to church for years. I've, I've got friends who have gone to church for decades, and they are unbelievers. 
unbelievers. It's a sad, sad statement. It's a sad reality. Just because you go through the motions doesn't mean that you're right with God. As my old pastor used to say, Bruce Baumgartner, just because you sit in your car in the garage doesn't turn you into a car. You sit in your car for hours. You're not going to become a car. Just because you sit in church Sunday after Sunday doesn't make you a Christian. It doesn't make you a believer. You must believe. Faith is not automatic. We're not robots. Faith doesn't rub off on you. Maybe the person next to you on, your, on one side or the other, they're a believer, you're not really sure, but you just kind of, you know, you like being close to them because there's some nice mojo and, you know, just... Eh, eh. It doesn't work that way. Faith is not automatic. Faith is a choice. It's an act of the will. And just because you follow Jesus doesn't mean you've necessarily been saved. The way you can know if you've been saved is if you have trusted in him for the forgiveness of your sins and the receiving of eternal life. That is the only way that you can know that you've been saved. Hearing the word of God is not enough. You must combine the word of God with faith. You must combine the word of God with your act of the will to believe it, to trust in it. Keep reading in verse 64. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. The apostle, again, revealed the deity of Christ. I mean, if you, if you, if you just read slowly, part of our problem and when we read the text is we just read too fast. We just read, you know, we, uh, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Slow down when you read the Bible. But if you just read slowly, you'll see all these jewels just just strong, strewn about in the Gospel of John. I mean, here we have another claim to deity for Jesus. Why? Because it says that Jesus knew their thoughts. Only God can read your thoughts. I can't read your thoughts. You can't read my thoughts. God can read your thoughts. And this is, a, I believe, a reference to God knowing their thoughts in the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. That's the beginning. The beginning, which is really not a beginning at all. It's a beginning that preceded the beginning of Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The beginning of John 1-1 is before that beginning. Remember, it says that God is from everlasting to everlasting. From olam to olam in the Hebrew. By the apostle referring to the beginning here in our verse, in verse 64, I think he's talking about before anything existed other than God, who has always existed. Back then, Jesus knew who would believe, is what the apostle is telling us. Back then, Jesus knew who, was the, who would be the believers and the unbelievers. Since eternity passed, Jesus has known and knew that some of his followers would be fakers. From eternity past, Jesus knew that some of his followers, some of those who follow him, do it for the wrong reason. Not because they want a relationship with God through faith, but they do it because maybe something good's going to come their way. Maybe it's a good luck charm. Maybe we'll get some more bread for our bellies. Since eternity past, 
God in the flesh, Jesus Christ knew that some of his followers would be fakers. And Judas Iscariot is the ultimate faker follower. You see Judas here in a moment. From the beginning, Jesus knew that Judas would betray him. Judas's betrayal in John chapter 18 was not a surprise to Jesus. Jesus knew that from the beginning, which was no beginning at all, before the foundation of the earth. John is showing us that Jesus is in complete control. Complete control. Don't believe that image. You've heard me say this many times. Don't believe that image of Jesus that he's some sort of helpless guy, just kind of the forces of, of, of Galilee just kind of move him from here and there, and the leaders that take advantage. That's not Jesus. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. The Jesus of the Bible is in complete control of all the events. And he's moving events consistently, methodically to his ascension, to the four elements of his ascension. Suffering, crucifixion, resurrection, and his ascension. Keep reading in verse 65. And he was saying, for this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. Here Jesus speaks of the doctrine of election, God's choice, as he has done a number of times already in John chapter 6. John chapter 6, verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. That's the doctrine of election. That's God's sovereign choice. Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent him, unless the Father who sent me draws him. That's God's sovereignty. That is God's sovereign elective choice. And yet Jesus also speaks of free will in the same chapter where he speaks of believing over and over. Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work, the requirement of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. Believing is not automatic. Believing, believing is not robotic. God doesn't stick his finger in your brain and, and flick the switch on. Believe. No, that's an act of the will. You have the will, the free will, to believe or not to believe. And so what is balanced in the Scripture is God's sovereignty and our free will. That's why you see in this chapter, Jesus speaking many times of election and also many times of free will. He said, he who believes in me will never thirst, in verse 35 and verse 40. Everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. Verse 47, truly, truly, I say to you, amen, amen, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. These are all statements of free will, of volition. And so you see the balance, the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. We are chosen but free. There is a tension there between the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. Am I free or is he sovereign? Yes is the answer. Yeah, both. You do no damage to the sovereignty of God by saying that we have free will. In fact, it enhances, it magnifies the sovereignty of God. If he can use free agents that he created with free will, he didn't create the buck, right? He didn't create the white-tailed deer with the free will that we have. 
the buck does what the buck's going to do, but the buck doesn't have the image of God, self-consciousness like us. I mean, yes, it, it decides to do this or that, but it's not like us, where we have volition. We have a free will being made in the image of God. And so we do no damage to the sovereignty of God by recognizing that we are free agents created with free will to choose for him or against him. And in fact, it enhances, it magnifies his sovereignty because that is a God indeed who can weave the decisions, the decisions of independent free agents into his plan since eternity past. And yet at the same time, we're free. Both of those things. I think we won't fully understand how we are chosen but free until we get there, and even then I think we'll still approach it in awe and wonder. God does not force anyone to believe, but those whom he has chosen will undoubtedly believe. Both are true. We are chosen but free, and the sovereignty of God and the free will of man coexist. Look at verse 66. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. Jesus' words turned off his disciples, so they split. They left. Your words are too much for us, Jesus. Too scandalizo, too offensive. I'm out of here. They left because they wanted a different Jesus. They wanted a Jesus who would give them stuff. Look, does, does God bless you? Absolutely. Any good thing that you have in, in your life is from God. But you don't worship the thing, you worship the God who gave you the thing. So it's not that there's anything wrong with stuff. I mean, we need food to eat. We need money to pay the bills. There's nothing wrong with those things as long as you keep them in perspective. But here, these people came to follow Jesus not because they wanted a relationship with God through Jesus, but because they wanted the stuff. The stuff was more important than the stuff giver. Which is to say they were idol worshipers, because the stuff was their idol. And so they were turned off by Jesus because they wanted a different Jesus than who he was and is. They wanted a political leader. Remember back in verse 15, they wanted to make him king by force. They wanted a political leader. They wanted someone who would give them free stuff. They didn't want a Jesus who would die as an atonement for their sins. They didn't want a Jesus who required them to believe in him alone, to trust in him alone for their salvation. They didn't want a Jesus who was, was and is God in the flesh. So as it always does, the word of God thinned out the crowd. That's what always happens with the word of God. Now, if we want to soft sell it and candy coat it, which happens many, many, many times in churches. We can't talk about that. You ever seen that interview of that guy? We don't talk about sin in our church. I won't give his name. Well, if you don't talk about sin, how can you talk about salvation? Because we're saved from being sinners. You can't understand the good news if you don't understand the bad news. So here the effort is at this church to teach the whole counsel of God's word. Regardless of the response. If God brings five people, 
praise God for that. If he brings 50 people, praise God for that. If he brings 500, praise God for that. That is not our business. Our business, the business of a church, is to put a man behind the pulpit and have him stand there flat-footed and say what's in the book. And the rest is not our jurisdiction. It's God's business. Then we see in verse 67. So Jesus said to the twelve, you do not want to go away also, do you? There must have been just a crowd leaving. I mean, it must have just been a herd, like an exodus, and everybody's leaving. And Jesus turns to the twelve and says, how about you? Do you want to leave also? He knows the answer, of course. He's omniscient. He's not asking the question because he's nervous that they're going to leave. He's asking the question because he wants to force them into a decision. He wants them to think. Because, as always, Jesus is in complete control of the events. Look at Peter's response in verse 68. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. The Holy One of God is a very unique title for Jesus. It's only used one other time by a demon. The demon in Mark 1, or in the parallel passage in Luke 4, who's about to be cast out, says to Jesus, calls him the Holy One of God, and then Jesus casts out the demon. Don't be troubled by that. Just because a demon uses the name doesn't mean there's anything wrong with the name, with the title. The title is the same title. It's a true title. And it's the title that that Peter uses here to address and describe Jesus. There are two things in the title. Holy, Holy One, and of God. Holy is the concept, whether it's in the Old Testament or the New Testament, of being distinct, utterly distinct from creation, and also morally pure. So Peter recognizes a divine characteristic in Jesus. He's recognizing that Jesus is God. That's holy, or the holy one. And then sent by God, or holy one of God, is this concept of being the Messiah. Chosen by God. Sent by God. That's what Mashiach means. Mashiach in the Hebrew means chosen or selected, anointed. You translate it in the Greek, you get Christos. You translate it in the English, you translate Christos in the English, we get Christ. Christ is in his last name. It's his title, Messiah. And so Peter is giving this great confession that Jesus is absolutely holy, which is a divine characteristic, and he is the Messiah sent by God. What Peter is professing here in his confession is Jesus, you alone our Messiah, where else are we going to go? Where else are we going to go? You alone have the words of eternal life, and we understand that we have life by trusting in your words. This is a beautiful confession by Peter. And he, what he's saying is, we twelve believe that. Keep reading in verse 70. Jesus answered them, did I myself, them, so now he's talking to all of them, did I myself 
not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. So Peter's confession, the content of the confession, was right, he was correct, but his assumption that all twelve shared the same confession, shared the same faith, was not accurate. Judas was an unbeliever. There are two people in the, in the Bible that are described as the son of perdition. The Antichrist and Judas. Judas Iscariot. Son of perdition, perdition meaning destruction. Judas is an unbeliever with, the, 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 the Greek here is, is anarthrous, meaning there's no article, there's no the or a. It just says one of you is diabolos. One of you is devil. And when, it's, when, when there's no, it doesn't say one of you is the devil or one of you is a devil. It's just one of you is devil. When you don't have an article, a, an a or a the or an an, in front of the, the, the noun in Greek, it, it, it has this idea of the quality, the characteristic. One of you is devil-like. One of you is, has devil-like characteristics. And in fact, the devil would indwell Judas Iscariot during his betrayal of Jesus. We'll get to that in John chapter 13. Jesus says here, I chose the twelve. That doesn't mean he, uh, choosing unto, unto salvation. It means choosing them to serve as his twelve disciples. And of course, Jesus again makes another claim to deity. In verse 70, we see his omniscience about the twelve because he knows Judas even though Judas always has his game face on. I mean, he's playing well. He's, he's, he's skimming money out of the money box. They don't know that. Jesus knows that. He's, he's going to church. I'm going to church on Sunday. I'm reading my Bible. I'm praying. He's going through the motions, but he's a faker. He's a faker follower of Jesus. The ultimate faker follower. Am, am, I, am I saying I don't want you to go to, to go to church? Of course I'm not saying that. Am I saying I don't want you to read your Bible? Of course I'm not saying that. Am I saying I don't want you to pray? No, pray. Go to church, read your Bible, study the Word of God. But do it because you love God. Do it because you want a relationship with God. Don't just go through the motions. It's a great offense to God. You want to talk about offense? Don't act like you're playing God. I don't mean like you're playing God to be yourself. I mean, you're trying to play him. Don't do that. That's what Judas was trying to do. He's trying to play Jesus. Play him like a fool. But of course, Judas will get his comeuppance before the events are over. Before the events of the gospel are over. The gospel of John. The Bread of Life sermon is a powerful message from our Lord. It's a message that Jesus is God incarnate who came from heaven to offer life everlasting to all who will believe in his sacrificial death. And maybe you're here today and you have never done that. You've never believed in Jesus' sacrificial death. You're still under the wrath of God, if that is you. You're subject to his vengeance. You're subject to his fierce fury. And we think of God as this soft, cuddly, being at our great, great peril. That is not who God is. 
God's not your homeboy, as one Hollywood type put it. He's not your buddy. He's not your pal. He is God, and you are not. He's holy and righteous, and you are a sinner before him, as am I before I came to Christ. You are subject to his wrath. You are the enemy of God. Make no mistake. If you have not come to Christ, you are under his wrath. And you say, I don't want to believe in a God like that. I'm not going to believe in a God who is exclusivistic. I'm not going to believe in a God who is wrathful. You will. You will. Right now, he gives you the option. He gives you the prerogative to exercise your free will. One day, he will remove your authority from you. Today's the day of mercy. You need mercy if you have not come to Christ. Today's the day of salvation. You need that. All you have to do is trust in him for the forgiveness of your sins and the receiving of eternal life. He is the one who died for our sins according to the scripture, was buried and raised on the third day according to the scripture. Fully God, fully man. And he sits at the right hand of God the Father to return soon. There is a day of reckoning. There is. The world kind of dismisses that. It's coming. All you have to do is trust in him. When the Philippian jailer said, what must I do to be saved to, to Paul and Silas? They didn't say do blah, 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 and don't do blah, blah, They just said, trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Done. Simple. God made it so simple for you because he loves you. Very painful for Jesus. He gave it all for you. He gave his life for you. I'm available afterwards if you'd like to visit. Let's close in prayer. Father, we praise you. We praise you because you are an awesome God. We fear you. We respect you. We love you. We praise you that you sent your son to die for us. We thank you for that. We ask that you give us eyes to see the things not seen. Give us spiritual sight in a world that is blind. Help us obey you. We also pray for our country. We pray that you would give us a revival. We pray that you would change the hearts of men. We pray that you would give us godly leaders and restrain the wicked. And yet we acknowledge that you are sovereign and that all of this is up to you, not to us. We submit to your jurisdiction, to your power. We submit that with respect to our nation, with respect to our lives, with respect to our culture, all of it. We give you all the praise and glory and honor. And we pray these things in the name of his majesty, the King of kings, Jesus Christ himself. Amen.